Listeners, welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim and I am the host of this program. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries awaits for your participation for listener survey. Your opinion is highly valued. All gathered information will be for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries. It will go towards our ministry's efforts to share the gospel. You may participate by completing the questionnaire survey delivered to your address or go online at www.heartandsoul.org. Our return address for paper survey is 12802 North 28th Drive, Phoenix, Arizona 85029. This survey ends November 30th. We await your participation and thank you for your input. I sincerely hope to believe all of our listeners have lived as witnesses of Christ by following His guidance. There is a very famous quote people say, Hate the sin, but love the sinner. I'm pretty sure you have all heard of this often. And who was the one that said this? It actually became popular because Gandhi said it, but they say that St. Augustine was the one who said it first. Regardless, this is a quote that a person of this world repeated that was first said by a Christian, but the reason it became frequently used and popular is because the underlying values of it can be shared and in common. People of the secular world also think that it is appropriate and right for us to hate sin, but to love the sinner. But I think this phrase is being used and said a little differently than what the original meaning holds. We'll come back to share more after our first song. is found He is my light, my strength, my soul, this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm What heights of love, what depths of peace when fears are still when striving i 
sin but love the sinner. How does this quote make you feel? So in other words, where do you think the main focus lies? On the sinner or the sin? People usually tend to put the focus on the part where it says to love the sinner. Even if they make a mistake, to forgive that person and to love that person, there is nothing wrong with that because of course we need to love people. And isn't this why Jesus came down? To love sinners like us and to become an example? But there's one thing we overlook, which is about sin. When you carefully think about this phrase, there are two parts to it. One is to love the sinner and the other to hate the sin. But as I said, it seems as if people focus greater on loving the sinner, but overlook on hating the sin. And it seems this has been modified as, if you love the sinner, although you don't love the sin, the sin can be somewhat excused. By reading some of the news articles I've read lately, I couldn't help but to think this. 
You may all have heard about it, but there is a story about how a university is kicking a Christian fellowship chapter off campus because the group requires its leaders to be Christians, which is an apparent violation of the university's non-discrimination policy. Or the article on how the Navy chaplain may be forced out of the Navy after speaking on his values of homosexuality, and an article about how a fire chief was actually fired for speaking out. When I see all these articles on how people are being persecuted and attacked for speaking on their thoughts of homosexuality, and how it is a sin, I cannot help but to think how corrupt and wrong this is. Presbyterian Church USA, known as PCUSA. By majority vote, have affirmed that marriage is a unique commitment between two people, traditionally a man and a woman. Pastors in PCUSA are now granted discretion to perform same-gender marriages in civil jurisdictions where they are legal. This isn't very surprising, as we look back from past history, we already predicted this would have happened. It is very upsetting to see this happen, but we need to really think about the essentials of this. Which is knowing there is a definite difference between loving the sinner and allowing the sin. Adam and Eve, remembering God's words but still choosing to follow the words of the serpent. Starting from then, sin has been passed down through humanity. God still continues to love us, who is so evil and full of wickedness, sinners, and continuously pours mercy upon us. The Creator of all, the Almighty One, came down as man. As the same image of us sinners, he paid all of our debt and forgave our sins by caring and dying on the cross. This is what we need to remember: God loved the sinners, but did not love the sin, and that is the significance of the cross. If God would have allowed sin, then He probably would have not sent His one and only Son to sacrifice His life on the cross. He simply did not just say He loved us, that He forgives us. And to nullify all sin, but the root of sin is death. He had a son carry it all for us, because he hated sin. We should not and cannot forget this.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Francis Chan of Cornerstone Church. Today's topic is The Importance of Communion Part 1 based on Luke chapter 22 verses 1 through 23. I hope you have a blessed time as you join Pastor Francis. Well, I'm going to be real honest with you guys this morning. Um, Last night for me here at church just really stunk. Um, It it just, I I don't know if I've ever gone home after preaching a message and feeling like I needed to ask God for forgiveness. I, I just felt like, gosh, I did not do it justice. And it bugged me because, because what we're talking about today is so, so sacred. It's, it's about communion and the Lord's Supper. And the more I looked at it this week, the more I studied, the more I feel like as a church, um, we're not maybe holding it as, as high as we ought to. And, and that a lot of that's my fault. And, and I just wanted so badly last night to not make communion something we just tack on to the end of the service but at least this weekend, really concentrate and everything else. And, and just the busyness of the night, the air conditioning wasn't working, we're sweating to death. You know, it just, I, I just went home going, Lord, I, this is something so sacred to you, so huge to you. In fact, it says the early church, when you read the book of Acts, there were four things that they devoted their lives to. And one of them was the Lord's Supper. It was that huge. They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship and to the Lord's Supper. And they would go from house to... I mean, it was huge, huge, huge. And, and, and honestly, I, I, I'm pretty convicted myself because I, I've read this passage many times. I mean, and we've taken a communion. Man, how many thousands of times, some of us. And yet the, the depth, the, the sacredness of this event, I, I just really want us to understand it. We're approaching the end of, of Christ's life in our study here. And we come to the, his last night on earth um, where he's, uh, he's celebrating and he's, he's having this Passover with his disciples and he institutes the Lord's Supper. And I, I really feel like I've missed the boat on this for, for many years, uh, to be honest with you. I mean, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke. And I, I, wanna, I want to, um, Luke chapter 22, I want to explain this, but I, I don't want to over-explain it because I think that's where we get in trouble. I've heard this passage preached, I don't know how many times, and every time I hear it, I, I, get, I get a piece of it, or I pick up some, some useful little tidbits or information, but I feel like I've missed, I've missed just the beauty of it. You know, when you nitpick and overanalyze things, you miss the big picture. And this is such a beautiful, emotional time in the life of our Lord. And, and don't make the mistake, as I, as I get ready to read this, don't make the mistake that I made for so many years of my life where I would look at events very mechanically. And I would look at what Jesus went through, like it was just this system that he went through. Okay, go through the process, go to the cross, this or that. And I missed all of the emotion behind it. I missed all the feelings behind it. And I feel like Scripture works overtime to help us to understand the feelings of our Lord and what he actually felt as he went through these things. Because here's what we do. As Christians, we spend a lot of time 
defending the deity of Jesus Christ, that he really is God, right? And we defend that, we fight for that, we go, no, the scriptures teach all the fullness of the deity dwells in Christ in bodily form. You know, that he was the Son of God. You know, in Philippians 2, it's the whole idea of equality with God, it says. It wasn't something he held on to, but he emptied himself. He, he let go of that, and he emptied himself and, and became nothing and took the form of a man. And we'll focus on that equality with God but we won't spend a lot of time talking about his humanity. Okay, this is where I missed it. I'm defending his deity, but I forget to just defend the fact that he really did empty himself, come down here, become nothing, and literally take the form of a man. And that means that everything Jesus went through, everything he felt, would be just the same as if I went through it. See, I, I don't think I always thought of it that way. I, I would look at Jesus and go, well, but he's God, so it probably didn't hurt him as much as it would hurt me to be nailed to a cross. It probably wouldn't hurt him as much, you know, to be betrayed. I mean, he knew Jesus was going to betray him. Big, you know, it's almost like I looked at him as this superhuman, in a sense, to where he didn't feel the things that you and I would feel. And that's the exact opposite of what Scripture teaches. I mean, Hebrews tells us that that's why we can come to God with confidence is because we don't have a high priest that's up there without any understanding of what we go through here on earth. It says, but we have one that's been tested in every way as we have. And he understands. And he came through it without sin. And it says, so therefore we can come and we can find mercy. We can find grace because when I pray to Jesus, he really understands what I went through because he went through it himself. So as, as we read this, man, understand, he, he really felt all of this. Luke chapter 22, and I don't want to spend too much time explaining it because I, I want us to just spend some good time really celebrating communion. Um, but but let's, let's read through the whole passage. Okay, try to stick with me and get all 23 verses and, and just keep your mind flowing with the thoughts here. Uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And I'll explain that a little bit. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat? the Passover with my disciples. He'll show you a large upper room, all furnished, make preparations there. So they left and found things just as Jesus had told them, and so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it's been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Okay, so here it is. Jesus, that night, was going to be arrested and then the next day he's crucified. And so now he's having this last supper with his disciples. And it's the day of the Passover and they're celebrating the Passover. This is very, very important. Okay, I do need to explain this. For those who don't know what the Passover meal was all about, it goes all the way back to Egypt and Pharaoh when, when they were enslaved by the Egyptians. The Jewish people, remember last week we talked about this, the Jewish people that God says, I'm going to bless the world through them. They're going to be a blessing to all of the nations. Now this group of people is being enslaved by the Egyptians. And, and, and they're growing, they're multiplying, so Pharaoh's just being tougher and tougher on these people. And so God says, I'm going to get my people out of there. And he sends a deliverer named Moses. And Moses is going to, you know, God's going to use Moses to deliver these plagues on these people of, of, of Egypt. And so all these plagues start coming so that, so that Moses can come before Pharaoh and say, are you going to let us go now? And Pharaoh keeps saying, no, no, we're not going to let you go. So God says, okay, I'm going to send one last plague. This, this one's going to do it. I'm going to have the firstborn in every single home die in one night. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, I mean I, I, we, we know the story, but imagine what that would feel like. What if tonight every firstborn child of every home in Simi Valley died tonight? Can you imagine the chaos, the pain, and they talk about this, the weeping and the wailing and the screaming. And so when that happens, Pharaoh finally goes, you know what, just get out of here. You, you, you Jews, get out of here before we all die. Obviously your God is with you. I'm terrified of God now. Just get out of here before we all die. Because Pharaoh probably experienced the same thing in watching his firstborn die. Now, with that story, the Bible also says that he tells the Jews... This is what I want you to do tonight. I want you to slay a lamb. And, and, and I want you to take the blood and put that blood over your doorposts, over the door frames. Because what's going to happen tonight is my angel is going to come across this land of Egypt. And he's going to slay the firstborn in every home unless he sees the blood over the doorposts. If he sees that on your house, he'll pass over your house. Okay, that's where you get the term... Passover. Okay? And so every year, then, then what happens is, you know, everything happens and, and, uh, and, and they leave. And, and, and God says, I don't want you to ever forget what happened in, in Egypt. And I want you to celebrate every single year. This is the most important feast to the Jews. I want you to celebrate the Passover, the time when I passed over. And, and that's why they would slaughter a lamb each year at Passover and have this meal. And the other thing that took place is when Pharaoh says, get out of here, the, 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 the Jews had to rush out. And the idea is that they rush so quickly, even if they're in the middle of making bread, it says, don't even put the yeast in the bread. Just grab your dough and get out of here. Grab everything you have and then just run and go. And that's when he splits the Red Sea and everything else. And so he says, what I want you to do every year is have this Passover feast or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 
where for a whole week you don't eat anything that has yeast in it. So at least during this one week of the year, you'll always remember what I did in Egypt. And it'll be this lasting thing. You'll teach it to your kids as you have this Passover meal every year and you eat bread without yeast every year. You'll remind them, well, because this is what God did years and years ago. So that's what they're celebrating here. And um, the interesting thing, though, is, uh, is look at verse 16 of Luke 22. As Jesus is about to, to, to you know, lead in this Passover meal, verse 16, Jesus says, well, look at verse 15. He said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Very important phrase. He says, I've eagerly desired this because we're going to eat this Passover. He goes, but, because this is the last time I'm going to eat it, until it finds fulfillment or it comes to completion. Okay, and I'm going to explain this, but let me back up. I, I forgot something. Okay, the, the, the lamb, the, the, the whole idea of, of sacrificing this lamb. Let me explain what they did back then. For the Passover meal, what you had to do was you had to find one of your sheep that was a year old, that had no blemishes, like the perfect, cute, you know, just cuddly little lamb, just nice and white and keep it by your side, just your most beautiful prized animal, a year old male. And then on the day of Passover, all the Jews, they would make a pilgrimage with these sheep to Jerusalem. And at Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, they would take the sheep to the temple. This is thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of sheep coming to Jerusalem in one day. And here's what you do. You would take this sheep and you would come into the temple and you would lay your hands on this little sheep that you've been caring for, cuddling, this beautiful little thing. You would lay your hands on it. In fact, some scholars say not only did you lay your hands, but you would put your weight on it, like you would lean on it. And the idea was, was that you were placing the weight of all of your sins from, from, from your whole life, really, your whole, all, all year long. All of your sins you're placing on this lamb on this sheep. And, and as you're leaning on it and you're putting your sins on it, you're, you're putting your sins on the sheep, the high priest would come by and he would slit the throat of the lamb. I mean, it was disgusting. And so it's, it's this idea of you're just collapsing on this, this lifeless thing, you know, this beautiful little sheep that you've been caring for all this time. And now he, his blood is being shed. He's paying the price for all of your crimes. And it was a very, can you imagine thousands and thousands of sheep in one day in this temple, the, the smell, the odor, just everything. It talks about how the blood would just be rushing out of the temple all the way down the mount into this brook, the brook Kidron, to where it would run red for weeks after that one Passover day. See, see a lot of people think of Passover, go, oh, it's a cute little beautiful meal. No, it's not. It was one of the most disgusting, horrifying scenes. Can you imagine walking into this place where thousands of sheep have been slaughtered and the weeping and the crying and the mess and just, just the stench. It, it, was, it was to shock their senses, to show them, look, this is how awful your sin is in the sight of God. That all of this has to take place. You know why? Because of your sin. And, and, and Leviticus 17.11 says that it's the blood, that the life is in the blood. And that's why this blood was the only thing that could atone for sin. 
See, now with all of that, then Jesus says here at this Passover meal with, with, with the, the lamb and, and, and the bread, he says, this is the last time we're going to take up this Passover. He goes, until it finds its fulfillment. Very important phrase, because that means the Passover and this meal and the celebration, the exodus, God says that's not an end in and of itself. It's leading up to something. It's a picture of something to come. And Jesus is saying, you know what, that thing has come now. In fact, this is the last time you're going to take of it until it finds its fulfillment, till it comes to the end. You see, that all of that Passover was pointing to one thing, and that's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, in the Old Testament, it, it, it taught us in Isaiah 53 that this one was going to come and he was going to bear our iniquities. And he was going to take on the sins of the world. And by his stripes, we were going to be healed. And it says that he was going to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. You see, Hebrews tells us that all that time, it's not really that those sheep were, were taking people's sins from them. It was all pointing to that day when someone was going to come and those who in faith did that in the past were going to reap the benefit of this lamb that was going to be slaughtered to atone for our sin. You've got to understand this. That Leviticus taught it's blood that atones for sin. Nothing else. Nothing else. It had to be that disgusting. It had to be that horrible.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store now. Please stay tuned as we are following a program that guides us to know what ethics Christians should hold, titled Christian Ethics. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston with Christian Ethics. A while back there was a daughter of a Korean pastor who was at risk of being euthanized at a hospital. While preparing for a marathon, she passed out and she was found to have a brain tumor. She received medical treatment for one year and during this time the hospital used morphine as a treatment to help her sleep each day. Having had too much of these drugs, the patient started to suffer from depression. The daughter's family testified that when she was depressed, she had wanted her life to end, so the hospital had suggested euthanasia as an option. In the end, this case was brought to a court, and the court was in the favor of the hospital. However, the patient refused euthanasia, and the hospital was unable to move forward with their suggestion. Euthanasia was first conceived from the idea that humans have a right to die peacefully. Today in Christian Ethics, we will spend time discussing the topic of euthanasia. On January 17, 2006, the Supreme Court ruled that it was unlawful to prohibit the Oregon state law which allows suicide with the assistance of a doctor. In those days, Oregon was the only state which legalized and allowed for someone to commit suicide with a doctor's help. If the doctor diagnoses that a patient only had six months or less to live, this kind of suicide, which is referred to as euthanasia, was allowed. Prior to this ruling, over 200 people had already died from euthanasia in the state of Oregon from 1998 to 2005. In 2005, the Terry Schiavo case brought a lot of attention to euthanasia. Terry Schiavo depended on a life support system to maintain her life. Her parents argued in favor of continuing life support and presented a series of legal challenges to let her live even though she was in a vegetative state. But the government was in favor of Terry's husband who claimed that Terry did not want her life to continue in a vegetative state. In the end, Terry passed away on March 31, 2005, 13 days after the hospital removed her feeding tube. The matter of deciding whether euthanasia is right or not is not an easy matter because there are many types of euthanasia. There are three common types of euthanasia. First, there is active euthanasia. This form of euthanasia is to end a life in order to reduce pain. Secondly, there is unnatural passive euthanasia. This type is to end a life by withholding the basic needs such as food, water, air, and more. Third, there is a natural passive euthanasia, which is ending a life 
by not performing a necessary artificial work such as dialysis or an organ transplant. Today, we will take a close look at the first type of euthanasia. Euthanasia is also referred to as a mercy killing and is intended to result in a peaceful death. There are people who believe the law of right of privacy also includes the right of dying with dignity. Supporters of euthanasia claim that rather than suffering from an illness or having to endure a severe depression, a person is dignified when he can choose death on his own. Active euthanasia is the most common type of euthanasia discussed in American courts today. However, many Christians and religious leaders strongly oppose it. Can humans choose the time of death for themselves? Do humans have such rights? Active euthanasia supporters believe euthanasia is an act of mercy to someone who is suffering from pain. Surely, euthanasia reduces the time of pain that a patient must endure. It also takes a heavy financial burden off of the family and society. They claim that euthanasia is a benevolent act. In other words, they say that just as it is benevolent to perform euthanasia on a dog suffering from a disease, it is also benevolent to set a person free from pain. So, how should Christians react to active euthanasia? First, we have to remember that a human does not have a moral authority to intentionally kill an innocent person. Whether it is done by a doctor or it's done by oneself, euthanasia is another form of murder. Actually, active euthanasia collides with the sanctity of life and God's sovereignty because euthanasia is based on the idea that a person has a moral right to decide the end of his life. At times, God uses hardships in our lives to teach us important lessons. There are many times where the hardship is not only needed for the person concerned, but also for the people around him. People who take care of the person suffering from the last stages of disease often testify that they have become stronger and more spiritual after going through the experience. Here in Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, many people have spiritually grown through the past president, Suing Kim's struggle against disease. If people truly believe in life's dignity, then the financial burden of the family and society is easily cleared up because we cannot put a price tag on a person's life. It is wrong to compare and say that just as killing a sick dog is a merciful act, it is merciful to kill a person in pain. A human is not just simply an animal. A human is the only creature that is created in God's image. Comparing a dog and a human stems from the idea of humanism or the theory of evolution, which claims we have evolved from an animal and not created in God's image. Christians who believe that our lives belong to God cannot agree with euthanasia, which allows a human decide when to die. Next time in Christian Ethics, we'll discuss the other two types of euthanasia, which are unnatural passive euthanasia and natural passive euthanasia. This concludes this week's episode of Christian Ethics. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
something so small I'm standing here weeping As I'm coming clean Of the secrets I'm keeping Cause I've caused so much pain To the ones I love the most And I'm falling apart As I carry my heart To your throne I am completely surrendering Dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. 
These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. These are the very passages of Jude 1, verses 17 through 19. This passage is a very accurate description of today's generation. There is another passage we should remember for this generation and age. It is from verse 22 and 23. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. He tells us to be merciful to those who doubt. And he tells us to be merciful to those who cannot see the word righteously. Also, he tells us to save by snatching them from fire. For the people who are headed towards the fire, to not leave them alone, and let them head in that direction, but to save them. He also tells us to hate their clothes, stained by corrupted flesh, but to show mercy mixed with fear. But this passage is not easy to understand. To show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. What does this mean? It is much easier to understand this verse when read in the original language. Save them from the fire, have mercy on them with fear, but hate their clothes stained by flesh. This is very true. We shouldn't hate the people headed for the fire drowned in sin, but to have mercy on them and to save them. We should approach them with God's great mercy and grace. However, the sin that has been committed and the clothes that have been stained by it should be hated. We should not allow or accept it. Love the sinner but hate the sin. This is a very true statement. We need to love the sinner but hate the sin. We should confirm ourselves of this value as Christians that the Bible continually strives to tell us, and I hope that we may act with mercy and fear in all that we do. I hope this next week we may all be able to save the ones that are headed for the fire and display to them the love of Christ as we will now wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time next week, and God bless. Jesus, friend of sinners, we have strayed so far away. We cut down people in your name, but the sword was never ours to swing. Jesus, friend of sinners, the truth's become so hard to see. The world is on their way to you, but they're tripping over me. Always looking around, but never looking up. I'm so double-minded. A plank-eyed saint with dirty hands and a heart divided. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, open our eyes to the world at the end of our pointing fingers. Let our hearts be led by mercy. Help us reach with open hearts and open doors. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, Break our hearts for what breaks yours. Hey, yeah. Yeah. Jesus, friend of sinners, the one who's riding in the sand. May the righteous turn away. 
was the 